The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and open up to Colossians chapter 1 as uh, we continue our series in the Lordship of uh, Jesus Christ and uh, taking a look at the book of Colossians. Uh, Right now our congregation is in between uh, books and we're setting aside a few weeks to focus on the supremacy of Jesus Christ and there's no better place to turn than Colossians chapter 1 uh, to speak of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. There, there are few passages that come close to touching the universal scope of the lordship of Jesus as this one does. In Colossians chapter 1, uh, Jesus is seen as the cosmic universal creator and ruler. Nothing exists outside of his dominion. In the heavens, on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He he is the goal of all of creation. Everything is for Jesus Christ. The creation and the consummation of all things are to be found in him. He is the alpha and the omega of all things. And in all things, Jesus Christ demands first place. In fact, this whole passage in Colossians chapter 1, verses uh, 15 down to, uh, to 23, and that's where uh, we'll be today in uh, verses 21 to 23 specifically. Uh, but this entire passage could be summarized by verse 18 that says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And when Paul uh, calls Jesus the firstborn, both in verse 15 and verse 18, that word firstborn doesn't mean first in time, but first in rank. That's to say that the Jesus Christ is superior, preeminent, supreme, above all. And everything else in this passage is just an argument why Jesus Christ is worthy of that position, why he is worthy of that supremacy. So if the question is, why should Christ be considered supreme over all creation? The answer beginning in verse 16 is for or because, or here are the reasons why he's to be considered supreme because he created all things. He's before all things. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning of the church. He's the fullness of deity, and he is the reconciler of all things. And none of that would be true about Jesus unless Jesus was supreme. You can't be the creator of all things and not be supreme. You can't be before all things and hold all things together if you're not supreme. You can't be the head of the church and the beginning of the church, which is the new creation, if you're not supreme. You can't have the fullness of deity dwell in you unless you are supreme. And finally, you can't reconcile all things to God unless you are God. Only God can accomplish that. Only God can make all things right. Only a supreme being could accomplish that. And that is who Jesus Christ is. And the last point about Jesus Christ being the reconciler of all things is what's going to be our focus today because that's what we find in verses 21 to 23. It's an expansion of that last point that Jesus Christ is the reconciler of all things, that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and for through him to reconcile all things to himself. 
So he expands on this idea of Jesus being the reconciler of all things. And it's almost like, like Paul couldn't pass over this idea of Jesus being the reconciler of all things without saying, hold up, let's, let's wait a minute. Let me tell you more about what that means. Let me tell you more about this reconciliation of Jesus Christ. Let's stop for a minute and think about this reconciliation because we need to understand the richness of reconciliation and why it points to Jesus Christ as being supreme. Appreciate the beauty of reconciliation. Number one, we need to understand who is included in that term, reconciliation. What, what kind of people are reconciled? Are these people with just minor infractions, minor offenses? Are those the people who are reconciled to God? Number two, we need to understand how that reconciliation takes place. How are people reconciled to God? Was, was it a small price that was paid to bring this reconciliation about? Number three, we need to understand why reconciliation takes place. What's the purpose of reconciliation? What's the benefit of reconciliation? What, what, what do you really lose if you're not reconciled? Is the benefit of reconciliation insignificant? And then finally, we need to understand what is the condition of those who are reconciled? What is true about those who are reconciled? Is there only a, a temporary change in those who are reconciled or is something more permanent about them? So let's jump into it. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, this Sunday as we do every Sunday. Every time we open up your word, Father, recognizing that, that this word that comes from you, that we cannot understand it without your help, without your assistance, without you opening up our, our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to, to grasp these things, that we would have a, a greater appreciation and and just a greater glory that would go up to Jesus Christ, that we would truly understand who he is and what he has done and accomplished for us. And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The focus of verses 21 to 23 is reconciliation. And it's, it's really a, a rich term that helps us to understand our salvation from a different angle. Uh, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, 
John Murray explains how the different terms that we use for salvation are not just synonyms, but they they help us to understand our salvation from a different perspective. For example, when we use the word forgiveness, when we say we're forgiven, it helps us understand that there was a debt that we owed God and we were not able to pay it back. Like the servant in Matthew 18 who had this insurmountable debt that he could not pay his master back. And he had to receive forgiveness. The the master had to take the debt upon himself. But he forgave that slave and forgot about the debt. The sinner stands before God as a debtor. And the debt is paid and forgiven. When we use the, the word rescue or salvation or even deliverance, it reminds us that there was a danger that we were in and we could not save ourselves from it. You you couldn't save yourself from the danger that you found yourself in. The sinner stands before God as helpless and is reassured, rescued, and delivered by God. God is the one who rescues us from a condition where we were helpless. At At the right time, while we were helpless, Christ died for us. When we use the word redemption, it reminds us that we were held captive in our sins. We had a price to be paid to be released from our bondage. We were in bondage. We had no means to free ourselves. We had to be set free. And in that word, the sinner stands before God as a slave and is granted freedom. When we use the word justification, it reminds us that we were guilty before God, under the sentence of condemnation, doomed to die. Perfect righteousness had to be offered in our place. Someone had to take the penalty for us. The sinner stands before God as accused in his divine courtroom. You are accused. You are guilty. But the the judge slams down the gavel and says, you know what? You're innocent. You're righteous. You're free to go. When we use the word propitiation, it reminds us that our sins placed us under the just wrath and condemnation of God. We were children of wrath heading for destruction. And someone had to be the object of God's wrath. God's wrath had to be satisfied. The anger of God against sins had to be satisfied. We could not bear the wrath of God and survive. The sinner stands as the target of God's wrath, but instead is made the recipient of mercy. And when we use the word reconciliation, we're reminded that we were alienated from God. Distant from God. Not only distant, we were enemies of God. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So the sinner stands before God as an, as an enemy, as a stranger. And what God does is he makes his enemy his friend and even adopts that enemy to be part of his own family. That's what we find in the word reconciliation. Our relationship with God was broken. We lived in hostility against God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled. And there was nothing that we could do to repair that relationship. John Murray goes on to write that reconciliation presupposes disrupted relations between God and man. It implies enmity and alienation. And these were the kinds of people that we are introduced to here. People people who are at enmity with God, enemies of God alienated from God. These are the people who are reconciled. Back in verse 21, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. These are the people who are reconciled 
to God. It's a word here. There's three designations that are used here, alienated, hostile, and evil. All of these describe the people who are reconciled uh, to God. Number one, we're alienated. Alienated. It's a word that means to be estranged. You know, we use that word for a, a relationship that's, that's broken. You know, we speak about an estranged relationship to, uh, to speak about a person that we no longer have a, a close fellowship or relationship with. We speak about the estrangement of a, a husband from his wife or uh, people have an estranged relationship with their sons or their daughters. You know, we used to, to have a, a close relationship, a close affection for one another, but now they're estranged. They're, they're distant from that relationship. Something's been broken. Something has to be repaired. And apart from reconciliation, we all exist in that kind of relationship with God. We're estranged. We're, we're broken. We're, the, the relationship between you and God is severed. We're like the, the prodigal son, you know, who, who takes all that he thinks belongs to him and goes out to the far country. You know, just give me what's mine and I'm done with you. That's, that's the way that people treat God. Just, just give me my life. I'll take control and I'm done with any kind of relationship with you. Now, that's basically what the prodigal son said. When did, when did you actually receive an inheritance? When your father died? <laughs> you know, that's when you receive the inheritance, when your father dies? What, what is the prodigal actually saying? Father, I wish you were already dead. Can, can we just get it on already? You know, just, just give me what belongs to me and I, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm out. Just, just give me what's mine. That's how we exist with God. Mankind was originally created in fellowship with his creator Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 speaks about how, how God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And it's written in such a way that it seems like a common occurrence that God just comes down and, and walks with his creation, comes down to enjoy his creation regularly, enters, the, the creation would enter into the presence of God. No shame, speaking freely with their creator. Adam knew God. He recognized God as the giver of all good things, all truth, all goodness, all beauty came from God. Gratefully received the blessings from God's hand, welcomed the presence of God without shame. Literally nothing stood between Adam and God, not even clothing. <laughs> nothing stood in the way between Adam and God. But on this day, Genesis chapter three and verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What, what are you hiding for? <laughs> what, what happened? This, this once close and affectionate relationship that you enjoyed, I mean, why, why are you now hiding from that relationship? Isaiah 59 verse 2 tells us, but your iniquities, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. And that's the cause of the alienation, Right? I mean, what did God say? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? <laughs> I already know what's going on, Adam. I know why you're hiding from me now. The estrangement has come because of sin. That, that made the separation. It was Adam's sin that caused the alienation. And in the garden, man turned his back on God. And every person that's been born since Adam hasn't been born with his face towards God, but with his face away from God. Back towards God. That's how we've been born, with our back toward God. You're not born into this world with a relationship with God. You're born in this world with your back toward God. I remember speaking with uh, one gentleman. He was a, a church member. And I asked him, you know, when did you come to know the Lord? And he says, oh, I've always known the Lord. My friend, you have not always known the Lord. <laughs> that's, that's not how we're born into this world, always knowing the Lord. We were born in a state of alienation from God. 
That's how we were born. That was our address before we were reconciled. Alienated. You can put that on your address. That's where you can find me. Alienated from God. So even though God is consciously aware of every man, we know that the the Lord does not have that kind of personal relationship with every man, right? Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. What does that say? We we have no relationship. (laughs) We we have no relationship. You're you're apart from me. You're alienated from me. We we don't have any kind of uh, fond affection towards one another. Matthew 25, verse 12 says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Why? Because there's no relationship. And there's no more terrifying state to be in than to be in a state of alienation from your creator. And to hear those words from the mouth of Christ, I don't know you. <laughs> you know, when you come to the, to the door of heaven, he says, I don't know who you are. <laughs> I don't know who you are. Depart from me. No more terrifying words in all of scripture. And this is true of all people that were not born with a relationship with him. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. John 8, 19, Jesus speaks to the Jewish people and he says, uh, you know neither me nor my father. <laughs> we have no relationship. Doesn't matter how you were born. You know, born into a believing family, that doesn't matter. <laughs> you think you have a relationship because of that? You grew up reading the, the word of God, so what? <laughs> have you entered into a relationship with God? You know, I've been baptized. I, I take communion every Sunday. What does that mean? Does that mean you have a relationship with God? I mean, you can do all the things on the outside. You can be raised up in all the rituals. You can have all the the external kind of manifestations of relationship with God and have nothing in your heart. Your heart could be absolutely empty of any kind of relationship with God. Separated from God. That's how we are born into the world. And not only are we separated from him, he separates himself from us. That's what it talks about in uh, Genesis 3, right? Not only... Was the man driven out? There was also cherubim that were stationed, flaming swords turning in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. What is that saying? You're out. (laughs) You're out of here. You cannot enter. Distant from God. And there was no way for man to enter back into that relationship that he lost. Number two, not only were we alienated, we were hostile. Hostile. Back in Colossians chapter 1. That word that's used for, for hostile, it's the Greek word uh, ekthros, and it's uh, from the word for hatred. Is, is that how you think of your relationship with God, that, that I'm a hater of God? I'm an enemy of God? You know, most people think that, you know, if there is a God, I mean, you know, I don't bother him, he doesn't bother me. I mean, like, like why, would be, why would we be at odds with one another? You know, when I finally get up there and have a chance to explain myself, I mean, he'll understand, right? You know, God, I just didn't think that you gave me enough evidence to really believe in you. You know, I would have believed if you know, there was just a little more that you did. You know, kind of, kind of putting the blame back on God like Adam did, right? It's the woman you gave me. You know, God, if, if you would only give me a little bit more, you know, I would have believed. You know, but my heart was really, you know, tender and all I wanted to do was just follow you. I'll explain it to him then. The truth is, is that uh, you've declared war on God. That's, that's the truth. You're not kind of like at this neutral line in the middle somewhere. No, you, you have declared war on God. You've rejected his right to rule over your life. You're hostile to God. That's what the scripture says. Our cry is the same thing as what's spoken of in Luke chapter 19 and verse 14. We will not have this man to rule over us. I, I will rule my own life. Thank you very much. You know, uh, I did it my way. 
I, I did it my way. You know, that's, that's the, 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 the kind of song of humanity. I, I do it my way. One of the hardest things to convince people of today is that you're, you're really not friends with God. <laughs> you're actually an enemy of God. George Whitfield was a famous evangelist in the 18th century. One day there was a, a lady from the upper class of society who was invited to hear George Whitfield preach, and she left saying these words, It is monstrous! To be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. She was insulted that somebody would have the nerve to call her a sinner. You know, don't, don't you see how I'm, I'm, how I'm dressed? You know, are you going to call me a sinner? You know, don't you know how much money I have? How much influence I have? I'm respected. You know, I, I'm, I may not be perfect. I mean, everybody says that, right? You know, I'm not perfect. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? You know, but I'm not a sinner. I remember actually speaking to this one young lady, and she says, you know, I, I mean, I may, be, I may be bad, but I'm not a sinner. I mean, come on. You know, have a little bit more respect, right? Don't call me a sinner. It's offensive. You know, we heard it today in the, the testimony, you know, running across that word heathen and realizing that's me. That's talking about me. We were enemies of God, and we needed to be reconciled to him. We were not friendly to God. We were not neutral to God. We were enemies of God. And those who oppose the gospel are considered God's enemies. Enemies of righteousness, enemies of the gospel, enemies of the cross of Christ, enemies in our minds. Our opposition to God is expressed even in the way that we think. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, it says the mind set on the flesh is what? Hostile towards God. You know, you, you think your own way without any connection, relationship to him. You just, just, just put it on autopilot. <laughs> you just put your mind on autopilot. And where is it? Hostile towards God. That, that's where it is. You just leave it alone. It's hostile towards God. In fact, the sins in our mind are even worse at times than the sins of our actions because we might not be able to do anything, but we can sure think it, can't we? Think up all kinds of stuff in our minds. All kind of hatred and envy and lust and all kinds of stuff going on in our hearts. And we just think that like somehow we're, we're just neutral. You know, that God doesn't see those things. Bible lets us know that uh, it should be the, the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart that needs to be acceptable in the sight of God. God, God sees what you think. And God demands to be Lord of your thinking. That's what he says in uh, Luke 10. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You need to love the Lord your God with all your mind. God demands lordship over your mind, and men are born hostile in their minds against God. One author says, No thoughts are more unwelcome to men, none less frequently in their mind than God. We don't want to think about him. And men refuse to subject their minds to the will of God. You know, there's that one saying, you know, my thoughts are my own. You ever heard that? No, they're not. (laughs) Your, your thoughts don't belong to you. You're not free to think whatever you want to think. You know, the Bible says that, that we're to, to give all of who we are to God. Mind, soul, body, strength, everything belongs to him. Those thoughts belong to God. And number three, we're also evil. Evil in our deeds, verse 21 again. Hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. We're not just enemies in our mind, we're enemies in our actions. And just in case you want to argue that, you know, my mind is really at peace with God Uh, The way that you live proves otherwise. The hostility in the mind is demonstrated by hostility in the actions. 
by our evil deeds. The mind is known. It's the proof of our hostility. In John chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, for everyone who does evil does what? Hates the light. Everybody who does what's evil hates the light. And Christ is that light. You, you don't want Christ. Evil deeds are the evidence that people hate the light and they refuse to worship him. Some people say, no, I don't hate God. I'm, I'm just not ready to follow him yet. I don't hate him, though. I'm just not ready to follow him. Well, well that is where your hatred toward God is expressed. Because you don't want to come to the light. Why? Because you hate it. You know, just, just saying, oh, I'm just not ready doesn't get you off the hook. You don't come to the light because you hate the light. I mean, that's what scripture says about us. Titus 1.16 says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Denying God in your deeds. And when we make a choice to love this present world and its system, the Bible says you make yourself an enemy of God. James 4 verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? I, I love the world. I love the way that my life is apart from God. Well, that, that is hatred toward God. That's what it is. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're okay with God because you profess to know him. Don't think that you're okay with God because you speak well of God. Don't think you're okay with God because you go to church, you've been baptized, you celebrate Christmas, go to church on Easter. None of that earns you any kind of favor before the Lord. You're still an enemy of God. And the magnificent truth of verse 22 is emphasized with the words, yet now. <laughs> Although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, verse 22, yet now. It's, it's like the words, but God, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. The, the beauty of reconciliation is so much brighter because of the dark backdrop of verse 21. That these people, these alienated people, these hostile people, these people engaged in evil deeds, what has God done? Yet he has now reconciled you. How is reconciliation made? It's through Jesus Christ. In his fleshly body through death. Yet he has now reconciled you. And the first thing that we can observe here is that God is the one who in initiates reconciliation. Actually, the, the subject of verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you. That's actually a reference to God the Father. Uh, that's the, the subject from verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. It's the Father who's behind reconciliation, who sends Christ. You know, it's, it's through Christ that the Father reconciles people to himself. So the first thing that we can observe here is that God is the one who initiates reconciliation. It was our sin that introduced the separation between man and God, but it's God who initiates the reconciliation. We initiated the separation. He initiates the reconciliation. When Adam sinned in the garden, you don't have Adam walking around the garden saying, God, where are you? God, God, I messed up. God, please come. God, I want to repair the relationship that I've broken. God, where are you? That's not what he says. It's God who has to come and say, Adam, where are you? Because Adam is busy somewhere hiding in the bushes. He doesn't want to come out and, and reveal himself to say, say Lord, I've, I've messed up. Lord, have mercy. No, he's the one who's, who's hiding. We initiated the separation. God initiates the reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And this also does away with this idea that the Father is somehow reluctant to offer the grace of salvation because it was his initiative to bring salvation. 
The father was behind this. It's not like, you know, the son has to kind of make them, you know, you know, hey, hey father, you know, please don't, don't, don't destroy these people. I'll, I'll go down for them. You know, please don't do this. That's not what's going on in heaven. The entire Trinity is at work bringing salvation to mankind. It was his initiative to bring us this reconciliation. I like how Tozer put it. He says the captured rebel does not willingly enter the presence of the king. He has so long fought unsuccessfully to overthrow. It's like, this is the king that I've fought all of my life against. But now he's the same king that says, come on, I'm willing to be made a friend. And for the Christian, we can boldly go before the throne of, of grace because it's the king who initiates the reconciliation. It was the father's good pleasure. It's the father's idea. Your hatred, your hostility, your past rejection was not enough to turn God away. Did, did you hear me on that? Your past is not enough to keep God from reconciling with you. He is the reconciler of his enemies. And the father is pleased to reconcile you to himself. And it's a full reconciliation. Full reconciliation. It's complete. That word for uh, reconciliation, it's the Greek word uh, apakatalasso, and it means to reconcile completely. It's a word which means to, to bring back to a former state of harmony, to change from hostility to friendship. Same word that's used for the, the restoration of a, of a broken marriage over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you know, speaking about a, a husband and a wife, believers who've been separated, and they're to be brought back together to reconcile them, reconcile them. And it demonstrates also in this word, it's, a, it's an intensified form of the word that shows that nothing is left out. And the tense of the word communicates that this is completed. It's a complete action. So you don't have to worry about God holding your past sins against you after you've been reconciled. He does not hold your offenses against you. And some of you carry the, the shame of your, your past actions, past sins, you know, and maybe... Because of those sins, you imagine that the God is somehow keeping you at an arm, arm's distance away. It's like, you know, hey, I'll let you in the house, but don't, don't get too close. <laughs> I, I remember what you did. I remember how you used to talk about me. I remember how you ignored me all the times and chances that I gave you, and you, you still went out and did that anyway. I, I remember what you did. And, and just God keeps you at a, at a distance. And it's like your, your past is always catching up with you. I want to remind you that if if you've received the reconciliation of, of God, God does not count your sins against you. God does not count your sins against you. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Your, your trespasses are not in the way anymore. Psalm 103 and verse 12, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, I've used this illustration before, but if you start at the South Pole and you start working your way up to the North Pole, guess where you start going once you leave the North Pole? You start heading south again. <laughs> but if a person's going east, he's always going east. If a person is going west, he's always going west. And God says, I've removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Not, not the north and the south where they'll, they'll meet up. No, it's the east and west. And it just keeps going and going and going. That's as far as God has removed our transgressions from us. Your sins are not counted against you. You don't have to walk around in the shame of your past transgressions. Not only was it a, a full reconciliation, it's also a bodily reconciliation. Look at verse 22. Amen. <laughs> verse 22. 
It says, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. How was your reconciliation accomplished? In his fleshly body. The, the means of reconciliation is unmistakably clear. The physical body of Christ was necessary for your reconciliation. There is no other way. Athanasius was quoted as saying the incarnation is reconciliation. It's, it's through the body that Jesus Christ came and he came in a body in order to provide reconciliation for us. That's the means. And that was an important point to make, especially uh, for the Colossians, because there was a false teaching that was going around that insisted that physical matter was evil. You know, the physical stuff of the universe is evil and only the spirit is good. You know, the, the, the fleshly things can contaminate you, but you know, spirit is good. That's actually the, the point of what Paul was bringing up in Colossians chapter two, where he says, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? What does that mean? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. What is that saying? It's the stuff around you that's going to contaminate you. If you touch that, if you taste that, if you handle that, you know, it's going to bring you down. You know, don't, I mean, we need to like just as much as we can just get away from this physical world. You know, just beat your body and fast, you know, you know, for days, you know, that's how you just kind of rid yourself of this evil world around you. You know, the physical objects are bad, but the spirit is good. And then Paul turns around and says, Jesus came in a fleshly body. He came in a body and he was good (laughs) and he was all good. You know, some even thought that Jesus couldn't be truly human, you know, because uh, to be human means that you've got to be physical. And if you're physical, that means you're contaminated. So they taught that Jesus wasn't really human. He just appeared to be human, you know, because they want to maintain that Jesus is good, but they, they can't put him in a body. But Paul leaves no ambiguity at all. He says, Jesus reconciled us in a fleshly body, a body of flesh. John 1, 14, the, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Have you ever considered that the eternal, infinite, all-glorious son of God, the one who holds the universe together, came down and was held as an infant while while still holding the universe in place. He was being held by his mother in a fleshly body stages of growth, no different than ours. He had a body of flesh and it was in that body that he accomplished reconciliation for us. Not only was it a bodily reconciliation, it was a bloody reconciliation. He reconciled you by means of his death. That's why a spiritual visitation couldn't do. He had to come in a body because he had to die and he had to shed his blood. And it was through his death that the offense was removed. It took a death to do that. That's, that's what our sins deserved. Our sins deserve death. Our sins deserve the punishment. And God can't simply sweep your sins under the rug. Some people say, you know, you know, can't God just simply forgive? I mean, why does there need to be a crucifixion and you know, Jesus Christ coming and all that. Why, why does it need to be a, a crucifixion? Because there needs to be blood. There needs to be a sacrifice made. There needs to be a death that's paid. And Jesus Christ came and paid that death. You offended him, and there can be no peace between you and God unless there is a death. Someone has to die for sins. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. It took a body. Jesus had to give his life unto death. 
You know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, I've, I've made my peace with God. You know, you, you can't make your peace with God. Peace has to be made with you. <laughs> God has to make peace with you. And the peace had to come at no small price. The, the peace came, the price for peace came in the blood of his cross. Reconciled through the blood of his cross. There is no peace without the offering of peace. There is no peace without the admission of guilt, and Jesus is our guilt offering. The only way that we can be reconciled to God is by the blood of his cross. It all comes back to the cross. You ever see those, uh, you know, bumper stickers, you know, coexist? It's got all those different symbols, you know, on it. It's got the, you know, the, the, the crescent of Islam and, you know, star of David and the peace symbol, you know, peace, peace, right? And everybody can just get along. You know, we can all just get along. All religions are equal. We're all equal. We can all coexist together. I want to let you know something. The crescent moon of Islam cannot offer you peace. The yin and yang symbol of Taoism cannot offer you peace. The peace sign cannot offer you peace. (laughs) Not even the star of David by itself can offer you peace. The only symbol that can offer peace is the cross. It's It's the cross where we find peace. The cross. And when the angels proclaim peace on earth... The angels were announcing the Prince of Peace. (laughs) And the sacrifice that he would make, that's how peace would be made. There had to be a death. It's through the death of his son that we've been reconciled to God. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. How? Through Christ. It's through Christ. And it's because of this that Christ deserves first place. We've been talking about that. Supremacy of Christ. Why does he deserve first place? Because he is the reconciler. No man, no angel could stand in his place. Christ had to be the one who died for sins so that he would be preeminent over all things, so that he would be supreme. It had to be Christ who accomplished it for us or else our devotion would belong to somebody else. Our devotion belongs to Christ alone. No priest, no pastor, no ritual. It's Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ alone. He is the one through whom we are reconciled to God. And what is the goal or purpose of our reconciliation? Back in verse 22, it says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to. Here's the purpose, purpose clause. Well, why did this happen? In order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Again, it's, it's God the Father who's being presented these people who've been rescued through Jesus Christ. And the goal is to present you acceptable before him. You are being prepared for God. Why, why, does, why is reconciliation so necessary? What's the goal of it? So that I could be brought to God. That, that relationship that was severed, broken, that relationship is going to be repaired. I'm going to be in the presence of God one day. I'll be brought to God, acceptable before him. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. He makes me presentable before God. This word uh, uh, to present was used in a judicial setting where a person was brought before a judge as acceptable. It was used in a a marital setting where a bride was brought before her husband, you know, having no spot, wrinkle, any such thing that she would be holy and blameless. It's the the picture and the idea here of acceptance, that we would be acceptable before God. It was used in the the, the, um, sacrifices, you know, the sacrificial system to present your offering before God, acceptable to God. Romans chapter uh, 12, verse 1 speaks about that. So the idea is that I'm brought 
before one to be accepted by that one that I'm brought before. The Old Testament sacrifice had to be free from blemish. A person brought before court had to be free from blame. A bride who was to be received was to be pure, free from, from stains. But the remarkable thing here is that, uh, that we can't do any of that to ourselves, right? I, I can't clean myself up like that to present myself. I mean, does anybody think you're prepared to see God like you are? You know, Isaiah, you know, he sees the, the vision of the Lord, you know, high and lofty, lifted up, the train of his robe filling the, the temple. And immediately, what is he talking about? Woe is me! What am I doing here? My eyes have seen the, the Lord of hosts. I mean, I'm ruined. I've spent my life, you know, as a, as a prophet condemning other people for their sins. But now that I'm before God, I'm the one that needs to be condemned. Woe is me! I, I am not fit to present myself before this holy and righteous God. We can't do that. That has to be done for us. God prepares us for himself. He he wraps his own gifts, okay? He wraps his own gifts. We can't prepare ourselves. We have to be prepared by God. That's the same truth that's brought out in uh, Matthew chapter 22, if you remember that parable of the the wedding banquet. You know, a a king held a wedding banquet for for his son and he went out to the highways and byways and invited people to come to the wedding. And then he sees somebody there who's uh, not dressed for the occasion and he kicks him out. So, hey, what are you doing here like that? Get out of here. You know, bind him hand and foot. And I used to read that story and it's like, give the guy a break. I mean, you just got him from the road. I mean, you picked him up and then you expect him to be dressed for the wedding. I mean, what's going on here? Not understanding in the culture that it was the king who provided you with your clothes. So what is that man saying? King, later for your clothes. I'll come in with what I came in. You know, just as I am. I'm coming just as I am. I don't need to put on your clothes. I'll keep my own clothes. That's why the man was tossed out. You're going to come in in your own filthy rags when I've provided you the, 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 the pure and righteous robes to be dressed in? And you're going to come like this? What, what kind of dishonor are you trying to give my son here? That, that's what's going on. Kiss the son lest he become angry with you. Give honor to the son. How do you give honor to the son? I take on the robes of his righteousness. I'm not going to show up in my own filthy rags. I'm going to take on his robes, his robes for mine. I'm not going to come like I am. God needs to prepare us. In Ephesians chapter 5, it speaks about the, the bride. You know, we're the bride of Christ, and it says that he might present to himself Jesus, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In the, the, the wedding between the church and Christ, guess who dresses the church? Jesus does. I know we've got like a couple people out, out here preparing to get married. I'm really doubting that any of those brides-to-be are uh, going to let their husbands dress them. <laughs> like, hey, you, you pick out the clothes for me, and you can dress me, you can prepare me. It's like, no, you, you stay where you are, and you'll see me when I walk down the aisle. You know, the bridesmaids might see me beforehand. You know, somebody might help me pick out the dress and, you know, seamstress or whatever. But no, you're not going to see it until I come down here. You're not going to prepare me for my wedding day. What are you talking about? Jesus prepares his own bride for the wedding day. I will prepare you without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You're going to be holy and blameless. And I know you can't do that on your own. I've got to do that for you. And how does God prepare us? Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Three adjectives that are used here all begin with the same letter 
in the Greek alphabet. So if I uh, alliterate, you know, my points, you know, it's just, I'm just trying to be biblical, just trying to be biblical. <laughs> All begin with the, the letter alpha in Greek, but here it is. We're hagias, holy, set apart, consecrated, morally pure, upright. It was used in the context of sacrifice. Hamomas, blameless, without stain. Used of the, the physical perfection required for a sacrificial animal. No stain, no imperfection. Anaglectas, beyond reproach. It's a legal term. It, it speaks of one who's free from accusation. And we will be presented before God as holy, blameless, beyond reproach. There, there's no imperfections when we're presented before God. Can you imagine that? <laughs> that? That one day you are going to be glorified, that every sin that you've ever committed will be done away with. I mean, not even the thought of sin in heaven that you will be presented before him as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach because of what Jesus Christ has done in reconciling you to God. It's God who has to do this. God has to do this to confirm you until the end. This is what God does. And we're going to be found before him blameless one day. And just briefly, I want to address the condition of those who are reconciled. What is the condition of those who are reconciled? reconciled. Take a look at uh, Colossians chapter 1 again. Look at verse 23. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under which, under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. What's going on here? What's going on here? There are people who will say that, uh, you know what, everybody's reconciled. You know, there, there, there's no restrictions on reconciliation. Everybody's reconciled. Actually, if you look back at uh, chapter 1 and verse 19, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. And there are some people who say that, you know, what this really means is that it, it doesn't matter if you have faith in Christ or not doesn't matter what religion you're a part of. Everybody's reconciled to God. All of us are reconciled to God. It's a, a view known as universalism. I actually remember at one time in our, our church's history, we were looking for a place to, to rent space from. And uh, there was a church that we started engaging in conversation. And I happened to listen to one of the messages that the pastor of this church was preaching. And uh, he was preaching from Colossians 1, 19 and 20. So I was like, hey, let me check out what he's going to say. And this is what he had to say. He said, all people are reconciled to God regardless of what they believe. And our only job as Christians is to go and tell them that you've already been reconciled. Like that's the good news that we come to tell people. You've already been reconciled to God. You've, you've been reconciled. It's, it's a view known, like again, universalism. No belief, no repentance is necessary. Everybody's in. And the good news is just, just to let them know that, hey, we're, we're, already, we're already united to God. Uh, needless to say, we didn't end up at that church. <laughs> we didn't end up at that church. There's other churches that place, you know, a little symbol next to their sign. You know, they post it on their website and they call themselves reconciling congregations or reconciling churches. And the symbol is a, a little rainbow symbol next to their, the name of their church. We're a reconciling church. This group of reconciling congregations was founded in 
1983 as a system for congregations to publicly support lesbians, gay men, and welcome them to full participation in the life of the church, both locally and beyond the local congregation. I remember uh, when we were in in college, uh, we were part of a gospel choir uh, in college, and uh, we came to, to kind of view all the, you know, the, the singers, you know, the different churches came, and there was this one church I'd never heard of before. And uh, they kind of looked a little different when they were coming in, you know, to walking on the stage. And they sang a song, look at me, I'm a testimony. That was their song. That was, they, they sang, look at me, I'm a testimony. And found out afterwards that this was a church that was openly gay and bisexual. That's like, uh, we, we welcome everybody. It's full members of our church. You're, you're part of the, part of the, the team. Is that the kind of reconciliation that we're talking about here? Colossians 1.13 lets us know that those who have been reconciled have been transformed and put under a new domain. Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you are reconciled, you've also been transferred into a new kingdom. You're part of a new kingdom now. Chapter 3. If you want to look at chapter 3, look at verse 5 in chapter 3. Chapter 3, Paul informs the Colossians that wrath is coming for those who are characterized by disobedience. Look at verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Listen to this. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come. Not might come. The wrath of God is coming. There will be some who will experience the wrath of God. Who experiences the wrath of God? The sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Used to, not now. Used to be like this, not anymore. The wrath of God is not satisfied, but is coming for certain people. And finally, the context here lets us know that there's a condition on reconciliation. That's why it says in verse 23, if... This is true for you if, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And that if that Paul uses there, it's a construction that he's assuming that this is true for you. I'm assuming that you're those who are continuing in the faith, firmly established. I'm assuming that that's true for you, but it leaves open the possibility that for some of you, it may not be. There, there might be some of you who are not holding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want to give some blanket statement that just says everybody's in. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe. No, no, there, there are certain people who are in and certain people who are out. There are certain people who have been reconciled and certain people who have not. So he makes that clear with the word if. If you are firmly established. If you continue in the faith, firmly established. That first word to be Firmly established, it's the word uh, uh, that means to be grounded. It's uh, used of a physical foundation in ancient times, uh, digging a foundation, laying out a, a foundation for a house. Uh, it's pictured in a, a Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, where it speaks of the foundations of the earth. Next word uh, comes from a, a word that means a, a, a pillar, a support. It's for a house, supports for a house. It says firmly established and steadfast. You know, 1 Timothy 3.15 speaks about, you know, uh, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. It's steadfast. And then there's this final word that says you're, you're not moved away. It actually uses this Greek word metakoneo, 
uh, which is where we get our English word kinetic from. You ever heard of the word kinetic? You know, uh, the motion, moving, kinetic energy. And he says, uh, this is somebody who's not kinetic. He's not moved. He's not going all over the place. He can't be shifted, can't be dislodged. He's immovable. And a saving faith, a true saving faith, is a faith that will stand fast. It will be secure, and it's secure to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Calvin says, uh, faith is not like mere opinion shaken by various movements, but has a firm steadfastness which can withstand all the machinations of hell. That's the kind of faith that we've been given by God, a a faith that is steadfast and secure. And we have to persevere. Persevering faith is given by the God who grants it. So those are the people who receive the reconciliation. And if you've received that reconciliation, guess what? Not only do you have to, to continue in the faith, on the other side, it's God who keeps you in the faith. <laughs> it's God who keeps you in the faith. That's how we persevere. It's because of God. Philippians 1, 6, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Those who are reconciled are those who believe. Those who believe are those who are reconciled. And how are we reconciled? It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not said to be in ourselves. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Christ, not in our ability to keep ourselves. It was John Bunyan who, when he was tempted to doubt, he looked up into heaven and he says, there, there at the right hand of God, there is my righteousness. He looked up to Jesus Christ and it's there that he found his hope. This is the gospel. (laughs) The gospel is, is that we can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And that's my question for you. Have, have you. have you trusted in the gospel? The good news that the Jesus Christ came and he's performed this work on your behalf, that peace was made for you by the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ, that you couldn't make peace for yourself, that there's no amount of good works that you could grant to God that, that would somehow earn your way into heaven. No, no, the, 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 the righteousness that it takes to, to get into heaven is a perfect righteousness. Matthew 5.45 says, you shall be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. And the only person who was able to live that kind of life was Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God was broken. And the only one who could repair that relationship is Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the, the only one. He's the one that we look to. We're sinners. And we stand before God as debtors, but the debt has been paid and we can be sent away as forgiven. We're sinners who stand before God as helpless, but God is the one who rescues and delivers us. We're sinners who stand before God as slaves, but God grants us the freedom of pardon. We're sinners who stand before God as accused and it's God who declares us righteous. We're sinners who stand as the target of God's wrath but we receive his mercy. And we're sinners who stand before God as enemies, strangers to God. But because of Jesus Christ, we're brought near and we're adopted into the family of God. We can give God praise for his reconciliation, can't we? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much uh, for this time that we've had to look into your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would allow your, uh, your word, uh, Lord, to... Uh, convict us, to challenge us. My Father, for those of us who 
our believers, Lord, that this word would encourage us that we've been reconciled to our creator because of the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that if there are any who are here who have not entered into that relationship with Christ, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would not uh, continue to, to be a stranger. They would not continue to be an enemy of their creator, but that they would receive the reconciliation and the peace that's been made with them through Jesus Christ, Lord. Today, that they would bow the knee and accept the free gift of salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.